Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey everybody, it's Anna from the Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, Verge policy reporter McKenna Kelly joins me to talk about everything that's happening in tech policy as we go into the 2020 election. This episode's coming out on Super Tuesday. It's a big day in the Democratic primary. What better day to launch the Verge's election coverage for the year, which we did on the website. McKenna and I go through all of the big policy areas that we're covering, from political advertising on social networks. Mike Bloomberg is kind of breaking the whole system and revealing the fault lines. We talk about what is going on with Section 230, and then really what I think is one one of the main things, McKenna's favorite, my favorite, broadband access in rural areas, which is a huge issue that is going undercovered. All stuff we're going to cover a lot this year. Check it out. It's McKenna Kelly on The Vergecast. McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge. Welcome. Hey, good to be back. How, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's just kind of like a lot all of the time. <laughs> it is a lot all of the time. So this episode is going to come out on, on Tuesday, which is Super Tuesday. Super. We're launching a lot of our election and policy coverage that same day. And I want to talk to you about the big issues that are already in the election, both in sort of the Democratic primary and then obviously what we're going to see in the the general election and what we're going to track. And so right now, it seems like you are spending a lot of time asking big platforms what memes are allowed because Bloomberg is spending an enormous amount of money and he's like pushing the boundaries of political advertising on the platforms. How's that going? Right. So it's split the platforms and how they enforce it, firstly. But I think it's good to start off on like how this happened. So Bloomberg is a billionaire. Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg. He likes to go by Mike and not Michael this time. Okay. Um, but Mike Bloomberg is a billionaire. He has yes. billions of dollars, um, about $60 billion net worth. And he is injecting basically all of that money into social platforms and cable television ads. Mike Bloomberg started as a middle-class kid who had to work his way through college. Mike Bloomberg knows the value of quality health care. If we get it done, Mike would get it done. It's pretty. It's a pretty simple strategy when you have a lot of money. Yeah. So <laughs> Bloomberg bought millions of ads. He buys millions of dollars of ads on Facebook and Google every day. But it's only so much money that you can throw into ads, right? So he's trying to find new ways to get his name out there. So the New York Times reported that the Michael Bloomberg campaign was working with Fuck Jerry, um, the fire Festival people. Um, yeah. It was basically sponsoring posts on popular meme pages. So once that was discovered, it basically started this whole new conversation about political advertising because social media has been filled with branded content for so long. Yeah, so let's just, I just want to unpack everything you said. Right, yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> 
So first, there is the difference between buying an ad on Facebook mm -hmm. and then getting some popular meme account to post something on your behalf. Right. And sponsored content, that's what we branded content, is like a, it's just a big business on platforms. Right. Every weight loss shake on Instagram is a branded content post. Yeah. So influencers post yeah. hashtag ad. It's a big business for media companies. So BuzzFeed runs Tasty. It's a big food like, vertical. They post a lot of food videos everywhere. Heinz can be like the best ketchup recipes. And they're like, buy it. And it's not an ad that you bought from Facebook. It's an ad that you bought from a media company that then organically travels. So Bloomberg is doing both. Right. Simultaneously. Okay. I, I just don't think most people understand that like branded content ecosystem is huge. Right. And there are entire companies like they've actually rebranded. They're Jerry Media now. They're family friendly. Oh, wow. But I still think of them as fuck Jerry. But like there are companies that are big like Jerry Media that do nothing but branded influencer marketing of this kind. That's just the baseline. Mm -hmm. So then Bloomberg is like hacking democracy with his money with both ways, right? Right. Um, so Facebook didn't have any rules about this because Facebook was operating like any other social platform. The money from branded content does not go to Facebook. You're talking about all these companies that take the money and it goes to influencers. Um, so Facebook didn't really have to have new rules for political content because this wasn't really done before, or at least that we know of. Mike Bloomberg's campaign was pretty excited about um, this and was very happy to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, they invented something. Right. They're like, look at us. Um, <laughs> So them being so vocal about this forced Facebook to kind of reckon with it. The influencer um, marketing. Side. Right. And it's not like influencers have not had political stances before. Right. I mean, one of the influencers who I think of when it comes to like voice, they've endorsed candidates before. I mean, Joe Rogan just endorsed Bernie Sanders. Casey Neistat put out his video in support of Hillary Clinton. And that a couple of years ago got a lot of lashback. So it's not like influencers have, have been apolitical. Right. It's the idea that political advertising has come to the influencer marketing economy. Right, exactly. So Facebook decided, hey, yeah, we're going to allow this as long as influencers use their branded content tool, just like they would for weight loss shakes or things like that, and make sure that users know that it's an ad. So hashtag ad, hashtag sponsored by Mike Bloomberg. So they're letting it happen, which is really interesting and new. But they don't have to make sure it's true. That's like this is the heart of the debate. Right. I right? mean, so that's the same thing with Facebook's political ads rules in the first place. Facebook doesn't care what a politician says is true or not. That's just the way it's been since they had these rules. Yeah. And this yeah. Is the, so there's a controversy on the you're just buying regular Facebook ad side mm -hmm. are fact-checking political advertising. And I think Elizabeth Warren has like made a lot of hay about this. Like, mm -hmm. you should have to. Facebook says, no, we shouldn't have to. Like, people can figure it out for themselves. And now that same policy is extended to influencer marketing. Right. Which seems a little bit more problematic to me, but I think Facebook's position is like it's all just advertising. Exactly, right. These influencer posts could be fact-checked, but only if, and this is where the enforcement gets really fuzzy, is if, a, if Facebook determines that the ad is in the influencer's voice and not the voice of the candidate. So... The policy is very is unenforceable. Yeah, like I like to say, with a lot of policies, <laughs> it is in tremendously difficult to enforce a lot of these. Yeah. Um. So it's like, are they meaningful at all? I mean, it raises these questions. And so then you might as well not have a policy, right? Which is like, I think Facebook often comes up with policies that are so unenforceable that they fundamentally don't have Facebook, a policy. Every social media platform. I mean, <laughs> well, so but, but Twitter is taking like a different approach, right? Right. So I mean, we have to like kind of go back and look at this video that Mike Bloomberg posted on Twitter. I'm the only one here that I think that's ever started a business. Is that fair? Okay. It was after the Nevada debate, right? right? Yes. So it was directly after, and Bloomberg 
like I like to say that he is starting to create content in the same way that the Trump campaign has. So his video, if you're familiar with Carpe Donc Tomb, but he is the Trump memer who You're some, so in it, McKenna. You're like, if you're familiar with this If you are familiar with memer. the famous memer Carpe Donc Tomb, <laughs> yeah. right. um, but he's making content very similar to how Trump has in the past. Yeah. And that's I think that's really important to note. But the video itself is cut in a way that some people could say is deceptive, but it is a meme video and it is a joke and it's satire. Right. Um, so in, this is a video where Bloomberg says, if any of you started a business before and there's mm-hmm. like literally he's added the sound of crickets. Right. I like to imagine that Bloomberg himself opened iMovie and like downloaded like crickets.mp3. Well, that's but, the thing. Those are, videos are so easy to make. And we talk about deep fakes all the time. But those videos, I mean, the Nancy Pelosi video that we talked about last year. Yeah, where, where they Nancy's, slowed her down. She slowed down and it sounds like she's slurring. We had a little, a long, took a little longer on the floor. The custody, custody of the border, the border. Everyone that wasn't AI. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that was iMovie or that was Premiere Pro or like something. Same thing with the Joe Biden video from a couple weeks ago where um, people were mad that it was cut in a way to make him sound racist, like he was making white nationalist remarks, but he was actually playing the role of yeah. a racist and then it was like cut out. So the platforms have created their own policies to kind of tackle deep fakes, but it leaves all this room for this very easily accessible and media that people create to kind of just skate away. So Twitter has a policy that comes out in March. And basically, they're giving themselves a lot of room, like any platform does, to determine if something should be taken down or if it's a deep fake or what constitutes the type of media. But Twitter told me that this Bloomberg video would receive a new label. So the label would basically just have something on the post saying that this is manipulated media, which it is. It is manipulated. Yeah. And Facebook, I reached out to Facebook. Um, they have a deep fakes policy too, but they also <laughs> leave themselves a lot of room for satire and parody videos. Facebook said it wouldn't take it down or, and it wouldn't label it as misinformation either. So they're kind of split on the video part of this. Yeah. Well, so that Twitter label to me, like everything is edited, everything is manipulated media. Like no candidate is putting out ads that are just like 24 hour live streams of them shaking hands or giving speeches. Like, what's the line there? So the line here with Facebook and with Twitter, it seems like it's not just they'll label manipulated media, but when it comes to taking things down, it has to be very deceptive or threaten serious harm to candidates or other people. So I don't know if we want to branch out of politics right now. I'm thinking of the only like thing that's like really dangerous, but like misinformation around the coronavirus, for example, Mm -hmm. and things like that. So if there's a manipulated media post there um, saying coronavirus is cool, catch it, (laughs) um, they would probably take that down, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of where it stands. It's like there is some stuff that can really disrupt the political conversation that we're having. Like the Bloomberg thing kind of stopped some of you know our colleagues to really discuss whether or not this should be taken down or whether it's manipulated media and should receive a label. But it really comes down to whether or not it can cause groups of people, communities harm. I'm just thinking about I don't know, reality shows. Mm-hmm. Like reality shows are famous for editing a narrative into a show that maybe wasn't there. Right. And it feels like that Bloomberg ad in particular, like a Top Chef clip highlight supercut of a season is the same exact thing. Right. Right. Does that fall under the rules? Like how are you – is it just political ads that fall under these rules? Is it all of that kind of stuff that exists? Is it when we make funny jokes about Samsung events, does that fall into – like that 
gets wider and wider and wider over time. And it feels like those kinds of videos in particular, where it's like a joke in a video, mm-hmm. have been with us for so long. I don't know if people are that confused. Right. I, I mean, with politics now and even with the 2016 election, lawmakers have been pushing for rules from Facebook and Twitter on this stuff. And I don't know if it's just because it's mostly coming from Democrats because of Trump and their disdain for Trump um, and how he uses social media. But it is interesting because meme videos and these kind of jokes and recut kind of clips and stuff is such an integral part of the internet and the entertainment ecosystem now. Look back, Stephen Colbert. Like, go back to television. They do this all the time on television, the, too. The Daily Show. Like, exactly. the John Stewart Daily Show in particular exactly. was, like, famous for this, right? Exactly. So, I mean, it's hard. But after 2016, I think there's this heightened sense um, amongst lawmakers and amongst politicians that a lot of this can get out of hand. So if you have the Nancy Pelosi video or something like that, maybe your average person wouldn't be deceived, but you could have bots that are blasting this video all across social media um, and all this. And it, it just causes problems. It may be some problems that we haven't even really realized are problems yet. <laughs> so Twitter did take down some bots that seem to be affiliated with the Bloomberg campaign. Right. So Twitter, um, the Los Angeles Times reported a couple days ago that through this like outvote app that um, the Bloomberg campaign uses, there was a lot of, they called it spam. They were basically acting as spam accounts, spamming positive remarks from Barbara Streisand yes. about Mike Bloomberg. That's, I mean, that's like the most Bloomberg. It's like, like I'm perfect- a billionaire. What am I spending it on? Fake Barbara Streisand quotes. Yeah. Just to target the boomers. They'll love it. <laughs> um, so no, it's really interesting. So they removed about 70 of them. And it's really interesting too, because when it comes to the Bloomberg stuff, Um, On Facebook, Facebook doesn't consider that um, these influencer posts or things coming from the Bloomberg campaign as coordinated and authentic behavior. And it seems like when we talk about that, we think about Russians, um, Iranian foreign interference campaigns when we think about inauthentic behavior. But it seems like Twitter is like, no, this is inauthentic behavior, too. Um, So they took down those 70 accounts. uh, And I'm sure there are a lot of these (laughs) that are still (laughs) out there. Yeah, it just seems like a missed business opportunity. Like, I'm like, I should start a network of Twitter accounts and let people buy it. Right. I should just. I'm American, for God's sake. I should make a network of accounts that are just like, McKenna's the best. Yeah. Like, what am I doing? Make that be 50 bucks? Yeah. Let's just do it. <laughs> McKenna's the best. <laughs> uh, well, it just seems like an obvious sort of like business opportunity. Like, mm-hmm. there's an entire ecosystem of influencers and bots and like social reach companies that mm-hmm. will do this stuff for you. Right. And if you're Bloomberg and you're just like fire hosing money into the ecosystem, it seems obvious that that will happen. Right. I mean, people hate it when influencers buy followers or like buy posts. But I mean, it's not something that's like new. Like right. people are like, yeah, this is just part of the Internet. But now once we get politics involved with it, it like explodes into this mess of like anger and outrage um, over a system that's existed for years now. Yeah. And so it seems like we keep talking about Twitter and Facebook. They're finding different lines. They're making different rules. They're taking different approaches. That's because there's no overall law or regulation that they have as a guide. They're just making it up as they go. Right. I mean, imagine asking lawmakers right now to regulate memes. It's hilarious. Um, I mean, I'm imagining it. it. I would like to see it happen. Right. Like, just to see what that conversation would be like. Uh, just to see them explain memes to each other mm-hmm. on the floor of the United States Congress. Mm-hmm. It'd be great. Yeah, that doesn't seem appropriate. No, at least not in the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, until like we become... <laughs> The members of Congress. Right, exactly. Uh, that's my goal, is to run on a meme-only platform. <laughs> it's going to be great. So there's no overall regulation. So they're doing stuff on their own. Right. Does one of them seem to be getting it more right than the other, Twitter and Facebook? 
Twitter, okay, this is really interesting. So Facebook comes out, it makes like its deep fakes policy, comes out with it earlier this year, and they get like a ton of criticism for it. Um, Twitter announces its own, and it's like more of a good guy stance on like the deep fakes policy. It's really interesting. It seems like Twitter, now I don't know. I don't know what my opinion is, but it seems like Twitter is positioning itself as like the good guy platform for yeah. the election right now. They banned political ads entirely last year. It seems like they're really thinking about how to moderate the platform um, for political ads and campaigns and posts and stuff into the future. Facebook is still in its like very much like hands off approach. Yeah. Which still you can trace back to Mark Zuckerberg's speeches over the past couple of years about free speech and Last thing we want to um, regulate on our platform is speech. Yeah, I, mean, I guess like both companies have said the political advertising is an inconsequential amount of money mm-hmm. for the bigger businesses, which is in many ways like depressing. Right. Right. Like Bloomberg can spend all of his money and it's still like a drop in the bucket compared to all the advertising on, on Facebook. Although we, we should ask them again because I wonder, I wonder if the Bloomberg money has like changed the balance for them. But they've mostly said this isn't a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Twitter's like, it's not a lot of money. It's too much, like, heartache. We're mm-hmm. just going to turn it off. Like, we don't need the money. Facebook's like, we don't need the money, but we don't want to We don't want to be involved in that way. We're going to let it happen. Here are some rules. But there's no – because there's no overall guideline, it's like we're watching this experiment play out. Right. And it's very unclear to me which, which one is better. Mm-hmm. And that also sits right next to the candidates themselves, members of Congress right now calling for moderation regulation for the platforms, calling for changes to 230 mm-hmm. or whatever. Do you see that interaction happening or is it just chaos? Well, yeah, no, this week it was really interesting. David Cicilline, who was on the Vergecast, <laughs> um, <laughs> he talked about, it hasn't been introduced yet, but he's talking about a bill that would amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in a way that platforms wouldn't receive those really important protections unless they ensured that their platforms weren't running false political ads. So you're seeing these things engage in a really interesting way um, that we haven't seen before, but was definitely going to come. <laughs> yeah. Well, at 230 is, I mean, that's the next sort of big thing to talk about. There's the campaign and sort of like uh, meme doctrine. I don't know what you would call it. The meme wars <laughs> that are occurring. I can't wait to write that. That's my next piece. Meme doctrine. The meme doctrine. It's, it's real. I mean, it's, it's, it is a thing that is happening right now. Like platforms are are figuring out how to deal with political memes mm-hmm. in a way that they did not in 2016, didn't want to, and now they have to. Right. So they're figuring that out now. Next to it is this, this other big policy issue that we've just been tracking forever, which is 230 and what protections the big platforms get for what their users publish on those platforms. It seems like everybody wants to, like, it's a, it's the gun. Like, they're mm-hmm. going to point the gun at, of taking 230 away from you unless you do what they want. And so one of them is take political ads away. But there's a long list of other ones, right? I mean, Josh Hawley, the Republicans' major tech our boy. Hawk, our boy. This was last year. And we don't really hear about it much anymore, weirdly enough, but um, about conservative bias on social media platforms. It was really hot last year. Yeah. And at, like, the height of its hotness, um, Josh Hawley put out a bill that was like, if you are biased um, against conservatives, then you lose 230 protections. And we've seen kind of bills jump on this kind of balancing act. 
of 230 versus what I want you to do. Yeah. Because 230 is like the greatest, you know what I mean? It's the, one of the most foundational parts of the internet. And it's like, if you just take that away um, or you threaten to take it away, it's a very major threat when you're yeah. trying to get something out of a if platform. If YouTube has to be liable for everything every person on YouTube right. publishes, like their business goes away. Yeah, YouTube's deleted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but so is Instagram, so is Reddit. Mm-hmm. Our comments, like, go, like, Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be responsible for what you put in Verge comments. I'm just telling you. It's right. just not going to happen. So we would just get rid of it. <laughs> so that's it's this foundational thing. We've talked about it so much. But there are a lot of people trying to make a lot of trades against it. So mm-hmm. Holly's one was he was going to have like a committee of like six people who would weigh if you were neutral. Right. Yeah. It was five people. It was like. But it was they had to come to a consensus. You couldn't have a hung jury. Yeah, yeah. It was this. like a unanimous vote of right. like Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. that he would just like select. Which out would of a never hat. happen. <laughs> it's <was> crazy town. <laughs> and then they would decide if Twitter was neutral enough to get its 230 protection. Mm-hmm. Fine. There is the Cicilline bill that you're talking about, which mm-hmm. seems like it's going to come out, which is you have to have a political ads policy that I like. Or I'm taking your 230 right. away. Right. Beto O'Rourke, when he was still running for president, um, he's from El Paso, Texas. And after the El Paso shooting, he put out a presidential campaign proposal basically saying that there can't be hate speech on platforms. Otherwise, you lose your 230 protections. So we've seen it there. In the most dramatic like way, we've heard Joe Biden say, take away 230, totally. I hate it. Revoke yeah. it. That's a very Biden move. Right. I mean, does he know what 230 is? Who knows? I mean, that's. I mean, if I could get these candidates to show he, up, I would ask them very right. directly. He um, knows that he's not supposed to like it 100%. So he just wants to get rid of it. <laughs> that's Biden. Yeah. He's just like emotions. They're doing that because they can't propose these regulations directly, it seems. You can't write a law that demands Facebook have a political advertising policy because you would just run – you're the government. You would just run right into the First Amendment. Right. So th- the dance here is the trade for – do what I want or I'll take 230 because they can mess with 230. Right. I mean, they created 230. It is a lot harder to carve out the First Amendment. Right. So it's, so that's that seems like the, the underlying 230 action is instead of doing something that might run afoul of the First Amendment, we'll just like hold this gun to your head and say, we'll take away 230 unless you do what I want. That is basically a speech right. regulation. Is that clear? Like, is are people making that trade explicitly or are they just kind of saying it should happen? I don't think anyone ever wants to talk about You don't want to be the lawmaker who's like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing something with the First Amendment. <laughs> like, that's not a good way to get reelected, you know? Fair. So um, I don't think a lot of people, a lot of lawmakers have brought that up explicitly. But the idea of, like, using 230 to wager what you want is definitely, it's in the Senate. It's in the House. It's with Republicans. It's with Democrats. People are thinking about it. And I think if we see any changes to 230... It's going to be with one of these hot button issues, whether it's ads or bias or hate speech, and maybe all of them in one. Who knows? Yeah. And so the, the, the one that comes to mind is uh, Bill Barr, who's the attorney general, Lindsey Graham. They've got a bill that they're working on that actually trades 230 protections for encryption. Right. Which seems like the other big thing in the gov- this administration in particular wants is backdoors into encryption for Apple, Google, Facebook, whoever. And the the sort of Barr Graham bill, it feels like Bill Barr wrote it and Lindsey Graham put his name on it. That's just my, I mean, that's my feeling about it. Cannot confirm, yeah. but I mean, no, it's interesting. So the argument over encryption and whether or not we should demand that Apple allow law enforcement to like look into your messages if you're suspected of a crime has happened for so long. Yeah, like so many years. But I think Bill Barr. And a lot of the Republicans have noted this 230 discussion and seeing, well, well, 
there's a lot of people wanting to regulate tech companies over 230, so maybe this is a way in for us. So, I mean, I would think that the two arguments, encryption has been happening for so long, and 230 is like the perfect out for them to really try to hammer this through into law, finally. So they would say, if you if you don't give us a backdoor into your encrypted messaging apps, we will take away your 230 protection. You're going to be sued into oblivion. Tell the people what the bill is called. Oh, I love this. The Earn It Act. <laughs> you got to earn it. I mean, it's basically it's basically the summary of all of these bills. It's yeah. like, if you want to have what you need, you got to earn it. Yeah. From me, specifically, and what I want. In each my lawmaker. bill, about 230. Right. <laughs> but broadly, has encryption come up in the campaign? We've talked about it a lot on the show. It's Obviously, Apple is very strident about not breaking encryption. Facebook says it's going to reorient all of its messaging apps to be encrypted. There's a lot of back and forth about material that's abusive to minors on the platforms that maybe the cops can't see because it's all encrypted. There's a lot of just general conversation about it, mm-hmm. costs and benefits. Is it part of the campaign yet? Not that I've seen. So there's a lot of issues that are like a big deal that haven't really made it into the um, broad political um, campaign discussion right now. And encryption hasn't really been one this year. Does that seem like it because it's just not a winner? To say I support encryption, right? I mean, I can't imagine my like sixty-year-old mother being like, "I'm not voting for Bernie Sanders because <laughs> of his encryption stance." You know what I mean? It's like yeah. not as hot as like healthcare. <laughs> yeah, not fair. Um, so I mean, like encryption definitely. I mean, the antitrust plan from Elizabeth Warren came at a really good time too. Mm-hmm. But encryption has been around in the um, fight to get into people's locked phones by the government has been a fight for a very long time, and it really hasn't had. A moment, and I think if we ever had like an encryption moment, the campaigns would be forced to yeah. react to it. And they, they, the government, various governments, the Obama administration tried, the Trump administration tried to mm-hmm. create those moments with terrorists. Mm-hmm. So there would be a shooting, and then we got to unlock the shooter's phone. Mm-hmm. Apple won't you help us? Apple basically said no, and then you know some company shows up and has a way to unlock it, and, mm-hmm. the, and the debate goes away. I think that's definitely shifted now to, to child abuse. Mm-hmm. That is the basis of the Earn It Act, actually, is, is based on abuse towards children. But it, that hasn't reached the campaign in any meaningful way either. Not yet, no. And I, it's just funny because when I think of politicians, I always think of just like think of the children right. messaging. And it seems like it's aligning, but it hasn't quite happened yet. Mm-hmm. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This leads to, I think, sort of the next one, which is like you've been tracking the progress towards a privacy bill. Right. That doesn't seem to have come up in this election at all. Not really, no. Andrew Yang had a big plan. He wanted a data protection agency. He had some stuff, but now our boy's out. Yeah. Um, Less tech discussion for all of us on the debate (laughs) stage, um, unfortunately. But no, it hasn't really made its way into the big political discussion. The same way that privacy wasn't really talked about in Congress until Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Um, So once again, we're waiting for another moment. Um, What's the status of the privacy bill in Congress? Because you have been tracking this very closely. Right. There's a lot of bills. We're waiting for the Senate Commerce Bill, for the Senate Commerce Republicans and Democrats to come together and put out one big bill that is the end-all be-all and it's what it's going to be. But they're still fighting over some details about whether or not California can have its own bill, whether Mm -hmm. or not they should preempt that or if we should be able to sue. Individual consumers, you mean? Yeah, individual consumers should be able to sue when their privacy rights are violated by Facebook or Google or whatever. So they're still kind of hung up on some of these details. Wait, walk me through that. Why wouldn't, shouldn't I be able to sue Google if it like does something bad with my data? Right, so Democrats agree. They're like, well, most Democrats agree. I hate to say all of them, but most Democrats agree that you should be able to sue if your rights with your data are violated, whatever those rights are in the privacy bill that we get. Because right now we don't really have very many rights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Republicans, I mean, this happened with TCPA, so the um, law that allowed you to sue robocallers and like scammers and stuff, phone scammers. Republicans just don't like the idea of frivolous lawsuits, and it's, they're afraid that if you allow consumers to sue Facebook or Google over these things, it would lead to a, like a firestorm of litigious people with no real claims um, that would like siphon these big companies with tons of money out of all of their money. <laughs> it's like on the one hand, they're like, we'll take 230 away from you and create an existential threat to your business. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. we don't want frivolous lawsuits to do that. Right. Exactly. Okay. No, totally it's weird. Sense. We're not going to see a federal privacy bill in the next two to three years. I was optimistic, and yeah. now I am fully pessimistic Oh no! about this. <laughs> so it's not going to be the next two to three years. It's probably going to be under a different administration. But we are seeing a lot of action from the states. New York is crafting its own privacy bill. California, the CCPA, Washington. There's a lot of momentum from the states to um, get some rules. Yeah, but and that creates like a fragmented marketplace for every company. So it feels like they're going to be annoyed with that enough to lobby their way into a federal bill. Right. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is already writing op-eds like, we need a federal law. Yeah. Um, and, so, and his law is like, all the stuff I'm doing would be great. Yep. Don't change anything I'm doing. <laughs> Don't hurt me. It just seems crazy that privacy, data privacy, again, right, there's healthcare, there's national security, there's the big topics. But it seems it seems unlikely that none of the candidates would put forward a privacy plan because everyone kind of understands it now mm-hmm. after Cambridge Analytica. Ever, like, there are lots of Amazon Echoes in the world. It seems like very obvious to say, here's what, here's what we think Amazon should be allowed to do with their mm-hmm. microphones in your house. And it just hasn't. No one's made that connection yet. No, not yet. Right next to that is after Trump got elected and Ajit Pai takes over the FCC and he immediately like, cancels 
the FCC's privacy rule for telecoms. Mm-hmm. So uh, telecoms are way less regulated than they were before. There's no net neutrality. The states can't, or they're not supposed to. There's a court fight over that. They can't impose their own net neutrality rules. There's no privacy rules for telecoms. It just seems like the split between how much we care about tech companies and telecom companies is getting ever wider. Right. I mean, we were. this is really interesting, and I bring this up with a lot of the people that I talk to. But we're not going to see much momentum on federal privacy regulation until we have the same movement that folks like Free Press created with net neutrality. Like yeah. you're not seeing people in the streets or websites shutting down because of privacy. But there is. It does seem like it's more. I can't quantify it. It does seem like people are more aware mm-hmm. of the privacy risks than ever before. It does seem like the split between GDPR and Europe and here is made that more concrete, Mm -hmm. but you're saying that hasn't really turned into any action. No, it hasn't turned into like grassroots momentum or anything like that. Um, And maybe it will in the future, but as of right now, it's not really a measurable effort, you know? Yeah. The other piece of it, though, is how little we think about telecoms in these conversations. Like, we've talked a lot about 230 and speech Mm -hmm. and what Google can put in its algorithms. We do not talk about what AT&T can do with its network at all, really, and they like own CNN. Does that come up anywhere in this conversation, or is that purely like, where's the internet going to be and who's going to have access to it? Right. No, I think that's basically it. When you talk about telecoms with com- with um, candidates, their biggest telecom plans have to do with getting people access, because that's still a very big issue. So last month, I went to Iowa, and I drove over 800 miles <laughs> um, all across the state from Des Moines, like a metro area like Des Moines. I talked to folks who had spotty access, and I went all the way up north, only a couple miles from the Minnesota border, and people who have n- absolutely no access. So it's those people that a lot of candidates really want to start reaching. So um, all of the candidates, all of the major ones, have big plans on how to expand rural broadband access, and that's something that Trump promised And we still haven't gotten. So it's been something that's been in campaigns for a number of years, but something that we haven't seen a lot of momentum on from the executive branch, Um, except from the FCC. They like to create piles of money and allocate that in the USDA, too. But um, it really. Why the USDA? And this was in your story, but explain to people why the USDA. Right. No, so the USDA, there's there's a handful of grant programs that small providers or even like big telecom providers can get access to to lay the fiber, to create the towers, um, to expand access in rural areas. Because I, I, when I was there, <laughs> you could travel down a dirt road for a mile, and you could only, if you laid fiber down for that, you would only connect maybe like one home. Wow. It is, it is so unprofitable. Yeah. So you need that grant money, and it needs to come from a variety of different sources. So the USDA and the FCC has their own grant programs um, to get that money out. And that can be like millions of dollars, um, a couple hundred thousand dollars to just get the fiber laid or whatever solution is best for the community. Right. So the, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, is like, we also want you to have fiber because you're farmers? Well, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's basically any small provider who really needs the money can, they have to fill out, oh my God, it's such a horrible process. Yeah. But in a lot of people hire consultants to like fire, to file these grants applications because they're so difficult to file. But yeah, so they just say, hello, we need help. And these are all the reasons why we need help and how many farmers we're going to connect and how many small businesses we're going to connect and how many families and school children. And the USA looks at that and decides whether or not they'll grant them the money. Wow. Yeah. Same thing with the FCC. They've been doing that, too. But the USDA Reconnect program has been around since 2018, I think. So not definitely not as long. Yeah. So 
there's a push to get access. Right now, what do the plans look like? What are the differences between the plans you're Right. Seeing? So you have some folks like Amy Klobuchar who are like, trillion-dollar infrastructure package. It's going to happen. <laughs> and we're going to have a lot of money in there for um, broadband deployment, which makes grants more accessible and things like that. There's also, we are very familiar with this here at The Verge, but there are laws that ban communities from coming together and creating their own networks when... Um, AT&T or Verizon or whoever, A, won't lay down yeah. the um, infrastructure needed or B, it's like too expensive um, because there's no competition in the area. There are laws in the books in many states that ban communities from doing that. So um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, the more progressive-leaning candidates, want to um, author some kind of legislation once they're in office that would basically preempt all of those municipal laws. Yeah. And these are like, they work in cities too. I think Comcast famously lobbied against like Philadelphia's citywide Wi-Fi system mm-hmm. that they wanted to build. Disclosure of Comcast through its NBC Universal arm is an investor of Vox Media. I-, I assure you they do not care for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fact. But they've done it in smaller areas too where you have a bunch of people in a small town. They're like, we're going to build our own Wi-Fi network. Mm-hmm. The town is going to pay for it. And there's like a state law usually that says you are not allowed to do that. Your right. small town is allowed to do that. So the, the idea here from Warren and Sanders is they would allow small communities to build their own networks. Right. I mean, to create more competition or just have them have access in the first place. How is that received? It, it feels like the municipal broadband conversation just went away for a long time. Right. So I think when you have more progressive candidates coming in, you hear a lot more about um, publicly owned utilities. Mm-hmm. So this publicly owned utility conversation is like coming back, I wouldn't say in like full force, but definitely in a recognizable and important way. How does that square with um, my favorite which is the 5G rhetoric, which is we don't need to do any of this. We're just going to put 5G networks somewhere. It's just going to get magically connected. It's really interesting because nobody knows what 5G is or why it's a race or any of this. Um, So it's really great to rely on that um, (laughs) as your supplement for broadband. (laughs) But sort of the the Trump FCC has, I mean, Ajit Pai, he consistently says he cares about rural broadband. He's consistently, he just put out a white space proposal, another thing that has historically not worked for a decade, but mm-hmm. whatever. Now here's a new proposal. He's committed to it in a sense that he talks about it a lot. Has that moved the ball forward at all? Right. So, I mean, with 5G, I'm not entirely sure. He has the World Digital Opportunity Fund that just came out. Um, some Democratic commissioners have some beef with it. But it is $20 billion that gets in the hands of providers to connect people over the next 10 years, which is very valuable. With 5G, I don't know. I always think back. There was a hearing in Congress a couple weeks ago with Gigi Sohn. Yeah. And I I always think about that quote because it's like you're relying on a technology that hasn't proven itself yet for such a valuable part of our economy now and something for broadband access that could lift a lot of like people in rural communities out of poverty um, and give them more opportunity. And two, I, I just think it's really hard to want to invest billions of dollars into a tech that just hasn't proved itself yet. Yeah. And especially when AT&T and Verizon and now T-Mobile, mm-hmm. the Sprint merger, they're committed to doing it. Mm-hmm. So you could let that play out while you go build the proven network. Right. And that just doesn't seem to be the yeah. case that's being made. I mean, it's it's the divide right now on the digital divide, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, so you're saying the progressives want to say community networks. What are the, sort of the more moderates on the Democratic side? I mean, most of it with Klobuchar, it's mostly money. Yeah. Um, if you get more money, money is the whole thing keeping people from being um, connected. 
So the, the sums of money are tr- vastly different mm-hmm. from like $20 billion. Bernie's plan is like $150 billion. So I don't know how <laughs> any of this. It also comes back to we've been trying to get an infrastructure package for so long. Yeah, There's that it's infrastructure joke. week. Yeah, it's infrastructure week every week and it <laughs> never actually happens. Um, so it's hard to decide or figure out or even imagine how much of that money would actually make its way through Congress Is there at a any split given time? On sort of Republicans and Democrats in Congress, because it, I mean, the more rural states are generally redder, mm-hmm. right? They have more Republican representation. Presumably, those people would like better networks in their states. Is there? Is there any movement on that side of the aisle? Right. It seems like it's a pretty bipartisan issue. If you look at the committees that handle this, for the most part, Republicans and Democrats agree that they need to do something. Um, how they're going to do that, I think, is where they disagree. Like, even when it comes to, this is kind of wonky, and excuse me. I'm ready for it. But the broadband maps, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, telecoms create their own maps. Basically, they send all the data back into the FCC and they craft the the maps where people don't have access based on data from the companies. And everyone is basically in agreement, Republicans and Democrats, that these maps are messed up and we need to figure (laughs) them out like now, like yesterday. Yeah. But there's a couple of pieces of bipartisan legislation that are moving, um, but Congress is slow. Right now, we're just finished impeachment and all this stuff. So, I mean, I could definitely see more momentum in the future, but... When it comes to a big infrastructure package with all this money, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this seems like kind of the big theme. We've talked about a lot of different issues. There's an election going on. It's an opportune time for these issues to come to the fore. Mm-hmm. And there just seems to be a gap between we're going to take away 230 and scream out Facebook political ads and, hey, huge chunks of America don't have broadband and we don't even know where they are because the maps are bad. Like that is a – easy problem for people to understand. It's an easy problem where people agree that the solution is just figure out a way to connect them. We should know what the maps are. And yet that's not being talked to about at all. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that split exists? Right now in between the campaigns and these issues? Yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's... it's the, it, What's the most core tech policy issue? It's like literally the digital divide. Right. right. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Facebook's doing mm-hmm. if you can't access Facebook at all. Right. And it doesn't seem like that comes up as much as it should? Is, do you think there's a reason for that? Is it just not politically sexy enough or what is it? It might not be politically sexy enough, but I'm also thinking that when I was in Iowa and I was covering the caucus, people were shocked <laughs> to have a tech reporter ask them questions. I mean, not just because we don't have enough tech people covering this stuff and asking those questions. It's really hard to tell, though. There also isn't a lot of party agreement on how to track these things. Like the Repu- if, we were, if the Republicans were running for president right now, for the most part, we'd have the populist wing of the party, the Josh Hawley's versus the libertarian wings of the parties. They can't come to an agreement yeah. on what tech policy looks like for them. And I think it's the same thing with the Democrats. You have progressives like Warren and Bernie and AOC who talks for Bernie all the time. And they're like, yeah, break them up. But the more moderate wing of the party doesn't want to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it's just because when it comes to tech policy, it's such an emerging issue that there just isn't enough um, agreement in the parties to make it that much of a central issue. Yeah, there's not even a clear enough split between the parties. Because a lot of the – like the Josh Hawley proposals – he squint. They look a lot like some of the more progressive proposals. Mm-hmm. Like, I will take control of Facebook myself. I, Josh Hawley, I will do it. Here's what I intend <laughs> to do. And that doesn't seem like 
like Bill Barr is like, I'm going to buy Nokia. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like your classic small government conservative proposal, but he's like, that's how I'll fix the 5G encryption right. problem. So I, I, I agree with you. Like, there's enough of a spread of ideas that they haven't coalesced mm-hmm. into party identities yet. Right. But at the same time, it just seems like, well, we're going to cover it. We're going to keep sending you to places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like it's at the top of mind for how, like, literally how democracy will function because mm-hmm. what we're fundamentally talking about is how information is distributed, right? And who has access to it and who sees true things and fake things. Right. And that, I don't think that we've, we're taking that seriously enough, quite honestly. No, I totally agree. And it's, I mean, it is kind of, it, it feels, how much did we learn from 2016? Not you enough. Know, not I think enough. Is the answer, yeah. No, not enough. The thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is that in 2016, we came out of it terrified of foreign interference. And now in 2020, the emerging issue is interference from the candidates themselves with Bloomberg and fake, deep fake videos and things like that. And that's something that gets really closely tied to regulating speech in a way that we're very uncomfortable with, but in a way that is, we, it's a very important conversation that we need to have if these platforms are going to be as important as they have been in democracy going forward. Yeah. Well, the good news is uh, you're on the podcast today because we're launching a whole thing <laughs> to do election coverage. You're going to be, uh, people are going to see your name a lot because uh, you're covering it very closely. What's the next big thing that you think is your, your focus? So the things that I'm really interested in are, it may, it may seem pretty minor, but I did a piece on just this random guy out in Washington who's running for Congress um, as a socialist on TikTok. So I'm, I'm very interested in how these emerging platforms are being used um, and really interested in how candidates, whether it's presidential candidates, congressional candidates, are using the internet to organize. Because for a lot of these um, smaller campaigns, they're quickly becoming national campaigns. Huh. Because if you're on TikTok and you're on everybody's For You page, or if you have a Discord server with people who support you all across the country, all of a sudden your small little district in rural Washington or wherever becomes a national campaign. Yeah. And that's something I think we're going to see so much more of, and I think it's going to be really important to dig into. Is that a fundraising thing, or is that just a culture thing? It's fundraising. It's phone banking. It's text banking. Like. It's creating big national movements for small little candidates, and I'm very excited to look more into that. (laughs) That seems really fun. All right, McKenna, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. We'll have you back on soon. Definitely. Cool. All right. My thanks to McKenna Kelly for joining us on this interview episode. Like I said, we launched a big election coverage section of The Verge today. You can go check it out on the site. We're going to be updating those guides to policy issues all year as the election goes on. Obviously, Casey and Zoe are doing the interface, their newsletter about social networks and democracy. There's just a lot of tech policy coverage to come. Check it out on the site. We'll be back on Friday with the chat show. Got to talk about that Mac Pro review Tuesday with an interview. And on and on we go. Please tweet at me. I'm Matt Reckless. I love hearing your feedback on the show and who you want me to talk to. We'll see you later. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. 